We'll begin by chanting Om together three times and three Vedic invocations. installment of Bhagavad Gita. You came for all the juicy stuff. Today is juicy stuff because this is all the, the, the response of Sri Krishna to Arjuna's dilemma. Arjuna's dilemma. How could we describe Arjuna's dilemma? It's an epic dilemma. <laughs> totally, He's completely conflicted and confused because of something that is, it's not just a confusion that's based on, like, dullardry, you know? It's not, a, it's not a confusion that's based on stupidity. His confusion is based on a very high state of alertness in both the heart and the mind. His mind is very clear. 
you know, it's very alert. It, it, it knows, you know, all the rational arguments, right? That's the height of our discrimination. It knows all the rational arguments. And then his heart, at the same time, is totally developed. It's completely, it's completely overflowing. And this is always the source of di dilemma that we have. Our head tells us one thing, our heart tells us another thing. And what do we do in that situation? My head tells me this is all wrong, or that this is, this is, or even that this is absolutely the right thing to do, and your heart or your instinct or your deep intuition tells you um, this is the absolute wrong thing to do, right? And have you ever made a decision in that particular state, right? If you go with either one of them, it ends up being kind of a, a problem. Usually we go with the head in those particular um, situations. <laughs> and it's always a disaster when our heart is telling us one thing. It's so clear. And the head is telling us another thing. Oftentimes we go with what the logic is telling us. And the logic is usually what gets us into all kinds of trouble, right? Likewise, if we just go purely by emotion, then it's, um, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have all the things sort of figured out, you know? Like, I'm just going to run away, I'm just going to leave everything behind. Um, it's, it's like, you know, you haven't figured out all the pieces, and so then that can sometimes be a disaster. So Arjuna is in a real state of dilemma. It's an authentic state of dilemma. What should I do? You know, and and in those moments, what's really what's really beautifully expressed here is Krishna's response. What is Krishna's response? Here it is. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha Kutastva Kashmalam Idam Vipame Samupastitam An Arya Jushatam Asvargyam Akirti Karam Arjuna. Let's all chant this together. This is a good one to memorize. Which, which one is this? This is, um, this is verse number two of chapter two. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha Kutastava Kashmalam Idam. That line again. Kutastava Kashmalam Idam. Vipame samupastitam, vipame samupastitam, an arya jushtam asvargyam, akirti karam arjuna, an arya jushtam asvargyam, akirti karam arjuna. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha Kutastva Kashmalam Idam Vipame Samupastitam An Arya Jushtam Asvargyam Akirti Karam Arjuna Kutastva Kashmalam Idam Vipame Samupastitam Anarya Jushtam Asvargyam 
Akirti Karam Arjuna Kutastva Kashmalam Midam Vipame Samupastitam Anarya Jushtamasvargyam Akirti Karam Arjuna is a beautiful verse. We'll, we'll, we'll spend our time memorizing the key verses um, because they're very valuable in these moments when you feel that. Kutastva, remember the word, kutastva. The, whenever we, whenever Sri Krishna speaks, we have to pay attention to which words he is using. And I'm going to point them out to you because the way they're translated and, and what they are really meant to point out are two totally different things. You know, so kash, uh, sorry, kutastva kashmalam. What is kutastva? Yeah, where is it? Where is it arising from? So it's like in these moments of dilemma between trying to figure out what my dharma is, right? Dharma, the whole point of Bhagavad Gita. We're going to see all the lessons come from Sri Krishna. Kutastva, where in the body? Which element is causing, is provoking the agitation in the mind? Is it too much wind? Is it too much fire? Is it too much earth? Is it too much ether? What is causing too much water? What's causing? Where does it reside in the body? Because immediately it takes him out of these two things. It immediately takes you out of your head and out of your heart and puts you in the body. Right? So this is beautiful, noble advice that he's giving. And oftentimes when this verse is translated, it sounds like Krishna is chiding Arjuna, kind of giving him a little bit of crap here. Because he's saying, you know, where is this, where is this kashmalam, this, this, this taint or this flaw? Where is it coming um, in the, at this particular moment, samupastitam, that's overtaking you? And what happens is these emotions that are caused by the elements, the play of the gunas ultimately, the three gunas, which we will be talking about a little bit later in the, in the teachings of the Gita, they overtake us and we, th and we think that they are us, right? When anger comes over us, you know, what do you say? You don't say anger is, you know? Anger is, you say, I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'm unhappy, right? And so we take ownership of it. What Krishna here is saying, where is, it, where is this coming from? You know, because ultimately the first part of chapter 2, Bhagavad Gita, is recounting for us the teachings of what? Sankhya. Sankhya. Okay. He's teaching Sankhya, which is to give us the, the, to give our mind a particular tool. That's what Sankhya does. Sankhya gives us the, the proper basis for reasoning through all problems. You know, it's not the ending of the teachings of Sri Krishna. It's just putting us in the right mindset, which is oftentimes what we need most when we're, when we're dealing with dilemma. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Let's introduce a third element here. It's always, whenever you're dealing with any kind of problem, introduce the third element, which is your awareness. Your awareness is what... what what sort of bridges or what goes between 
the heart and the mind. The heart and the mind, the bridge between them is your conscious awareness, the witness, the witness state. Remember we went through all the layers of the mind? I don't know if we did that in this class, but I've gone through it in other classes. All the layers of the mind, that's all the chitta. The chitta is what responds to the elements. The chitta responds to the elements. But then there's the part of me that can always witness. This is the difference between a yogi and an ordinary person. The difference between a yogi and an ordinary person is that the ordinary person becomes their emotion. They are their emotion. I am angry. I am full of grief. I am unhappy. I am, you know, joyful. I, the I is there. What, what yoga, meditation, the, the, the contact that we have when we practice yoga, meditation, deep, chanting, anything that puts us, pranayama, anything that puts us in touch with the transcendental self, the transcendental being, that enriches our ability to witness the things that are arising in our mind, that are caused by the element. That's why Krishna says, kutas tava. Where is it happening? It, it invokes the third element. Oh, okay, where, okay, where is it? He's not chastising him when he says an arya makirti karamarjuna. He's just saying that that whatever's coming up in you, that's that's your feeling. You know, I'm angry, I'm unhappy, I'm sad, I'm full of grief. It it isn't it isn't serving your highest self, an arya. It's not leading to happiness. It doesn't lead to like any kind of. Um, uh, example that you could set for another person, akirti. It doesn't make you famous, but it means here that it doesn't, it it doesn't inspire anybody. What it does is it sends all of us in a tailspin. You know, if I came in this class and I I had just gotten off the phone or with somebody and I was full of anger, right? And I just and I didn't have any ability to just sort of witness the anger and realize oh it was kind of hot in the room and this was just the element where is it in my body breathe through it let it go then I would totally taint this class I'd spend the whole class sharing my anger and then you'd all get angry that's a kirti it's not good you know so he's not he's not berating him he's just saying that see that. These things that are passing through us are not who we are. That's the meaning of the kutastva. Kutastva, so very important verse. And then Arjuna, we left off class last time talking about Arjuna, you know, sort of reasoning through all of it, you know, and he says, you know, bruhitanme, which I totally love. Remember what does bruhitan me mean? In verse number seven. Breathe, breathe, the, breathe the light of truth in me. You know, so beautiful. This is this is the whole uh, basis of the guru disciple relationship. It's like I can't figure it out. I surrender. You know, we had this whole conversation about surrender in the last the last class about how how surrender is is very difficult thing for a lot of us to get our our mind around because we think that we're losing by surrendering 
We think that somehow surrendering is weak, that it's a weak thing. But I tell you, only the strongest people can surrender. It's like it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of strength to be able to say, I can't figure it out. Let thy will be done. You know, what, what we see in ordinary, in ordinary um, walks of life, in the ordinary state of consciousness, of a real difficulty in surrendering. It's like when something happens to us, you know, that we can't do anything about, it's like what causes us grief is because we keep trying to make it happen. You know, we keep trying to like change the fate or change the situation. And, and we think that if we just keep pounding our head against the wall, that that's somehow going to create some kind of result. I mean, and this is where it's very hard to know. And Krishna's gonna address this when we get into the yoga of action. When we get into the yoga half of this particular chapter, but first we have to have the right mindset. You know, we have to have the discrimination to know when we can actually do something, how to align with what we can actually do, and when we have to surrender. And that's a really hard thing to know unless you're in touch with a deeper state of being. The yogi who has discrimination can know this. This is why we develop our discrimination. We know, okay, this is one of those situations where, where I can use my, my, my rational mind and, and it makes sense. But I think all of us have been in situations where no matter how much we've rationed out, rationalized things, how much of a sure bet something is, some weird thing happens and it's totally out of our control and then we suffer. And then we feel like, what can I do? What can I do? And it's like, in those moments, this is where the wisdom of verse number seven comes. In those moments, we have to let go. And you have to have enough faith and trust to know that when you let go, you will be, everything will be given to you. Remember I told you about the, that, that custom in, in these South Indian temples when, when the, when the devotee bows down or surrenders to God or surrenders to God in the form of the deity, the priest comes with the crown and crowns the head of the person. That's exactly what surrender achieves. We think we're losing, but it takes a very brave person to jump out of the airplane. You know, it takes a very brave person to trust that the parachute will open because it might not. You know, and we don't, like when people talk about the guru-disciple relationship, a lot of times the, um, the, uh, the response is, well, I don't want to lose my control, you know, because, and, and it's true, some things in life we do have, we have the choice of control, and some things in life we don't have any control. And surrender, whatever form it takes, you know, it's like whether it's the child. Remember, we talked about all the ways. Whether it's the, whether it's the person who who is is wise, the master, or whether it's the child. The parent has to surrender to what what they get in the form of a child. <laughs> you know, talk about losing control. You know, or surrendering to the friend, or surrendering to the beloved. It's like in those moments. 
it, in a way, it doesn't matter about the other person. It's the devotee who has done a great act of strength, has, has laid themselves down, and opened them up to receive something higher. It's just the love that causes that to happen. It's the bond of love. And I mean, every day, the whole world is dealing with betrayal of this. You know, that's not the point. You know, you can get all afraid about, well, I loved before and I'm not going to be burned again, you know, or my master, it turned out, you know, he was, he was absconding with the money and, you know, or he was doing all kinds of, of illegal things or my child is like, turned out to not be what I hoped they would be. You know, there's all, or my friend, you know, turned out not to be a friend. And so we can get burned by it. But what you have to really see is the value of those relationships is not what you get out of them in the way that you think. The value of those relationships is because you surrendered. Because you, you, you uh, laid down. You opened yourself up, and that person or that situation was the catalyst for you to open yourself up to a higher influence. That's the value of the guru-disciple relationship. It has nothing to do with giving away your power or being exploited or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, okay, it goes on, but, but the wise devotee realizes that that whatever happens in the context of me surrendering is not my business. That person I'm grateful for because they allowed me to experience something big in myself. It's like I got to love unconditionally or I got to experience, you know, um, what surrender is, what unconditional love is, what, what my heart, the great capacity of my heart this is this is the value of surrender. So beautiful. It's so it's just so incredibly valuable. And Arjuna does this with Krishna, not because Krishna is some great, you know, celestial being. We don't get to see Krishna's celestial self until way way longer, chapter 10, you know, cosmic form, you know, then he reveals it. Arjuna just loves him because he's his best friend and he just feels like this is the one person in the world who he loves more than anybody else and so it's easy for him to surrender you know that's that's all that happens here this is nothing more grand than that so so arjuna surrenders and then what happens in verse number eight i'm just going to summarize here because i've got more juicy stuff i want to talk about in today's class but in verse number 8, he's talking about his senses drying up. He's talking about his senses drying up. He says, I don't see what could dispel the grief that's drying up my senses. Though I could get, you know, this great kingdom and I could be a great lord on earth, I could be the best king on earth. What is drying up my senses, it's like, what happens is he, he has, through surrender, right? Through surrender, he has transcended his senses. He's, Vyasa is using it drying up my senses. But when we surrender, like letting go, what all meditation is, is letting go. That's all meditation is. It's not 
contemplating and concentrating and holding the mind really rigid because that doesn't that's contemplation that's concentra concentration transcendence is letting go it's the practice of effortless release it's effortless everything we do in life requires effort but meditation requires no effort it's a total contradiction but it's no effort. It's the same thing with surrender. No effort. And so Arjuna surrenders and he enters into that field of the transcendent. And he says, now he doesn't see, you know, what, what could possibly in the realm of opposites, in the realm of the senses, what could possibly get rid of my feeling of not wanting to get up and fight here? Because he's transcended it. You see? He's in the state of witness, and, and he's looking at it going, you know, I'd rather be here. I'd rather be in my cave, <laughs> right? Than have to, like, make this decision. This is the whole escapism. Yogi who likes to escape. Yogi who runs away to the forest or to the cave or whatever. It's like, this is much better because I don't have to make a decision. Isn't this, isn't this the tactic that a lot of us do? And the surrender can make that happen. It's like the, the meditation can make that happen. I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is meditate. That's basically what Arjuna is saying here. Oh, okay, I get it. And so I don't really see what, what action I need to do that can make anything right. In fact, I think no action is better than action in this particular case. That's what he's saying. And so he, he says in, in verse number nine, this is so great, Vyasa, such a brilliant, enlightened mind, Veda Vyasa, because of all the words that he chooses here to explain this truth, to explain the beauty of what is being expressed. Veda Vyasa calls... Um, Arjuna and Krishna by two different names. He calls Krishna as, I love this. Let me see here, what is it? It's a uh, hri, not hri, hri. He calls him Hrishi Kesha. And he calls, that's Krishna, Hrishi Kesha. And he calls Arjuna. <laughs> this is so fun. Gouda. It sounds like what it is, name and form. Gouda Kesha. He calls, he calls Krishna Hrishikesha, which means it's a horripilating haired one. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. Does that word exist in English? I looked it up at the previous lecture where you brought it up, and it does. It does. Horripilating haired <laughs> yeah, one. Lightning. Yeah, lightning haired one, which means I, when I stick my finger in the electrical sprocket, my hair gets curly, makes my hair curl. It makes my senses stand up on end. It's like when the, the finger in the electrical sprocket is a good example because when you touch um, that electricity, you are so in the present moment, right? <laughs> that is Hrishikesha. Hrishikesha means someone who is so in the present moment. They are so tuned in to what's happening. That's Hrishi, like horripilating haired one, you know? 
And then Vyasa calls Arjuna Guda Kesha. Guda. Guda Kesha, which means mm, glue-haired one. <laughs> glue-haired one means dense. <laughs> means one who is a little bit dense. You know, it's like master and disciple. The disciple's a little bit dense. You know, we're we're not in the present moment. We're not tuned into what's happening. Rishikesha is the one who's tuned in, and you know he spoke to him. You know, Gurukesha said to Rishikesha, having thus said to to the the dull one to the enlightened one, spoke these words. Kind of, I mean, they're not really they're not blatantly ignorant, but they're a little there. There's a piece missing here. This is the piece that's missing here. And then he, uh, Veda Vyasa then refers to, to uh, Krishna as Govinda. This is such a nice name. Then he refers to him as Govinda. And Govinda, literally, it, it means protector of cows. Okay? So it means herder of cows. Um, but... There's an esoteric meaning of this particular name, too. It means one who conceals the light. One who contains the light within is Govinda. One who has it inside of him. And just like, you know, the cows, they always follow the shepherd, you know. We all follow the light. So it's the one who contains the light of wisdom. Go. Go is cow but it's also knowledge concealed inside of him, the truth, the one who has the truth inside of him. And so Arjuna basically says, you know, I'm, I'm going to choose not action. <laughs> In verse number nine, he says, I, I don't, you know, my heart and mind are totally conflicted. You know, I've surrendered to you and I've transcended my senses. So when my, my senses are transcended, it means nothing is working on my chitta. It's like our mind is totally operating because the presence of light, the presence of, of air, the presence of water, the presence of earth. Our senses, our mind gets activated through our senses. But when his senses are dried up, he has no more mind. <laughs> he's totally, he's totally Gouda. He's completely dried up. You know, he doesn't know. He's in the transcendent. And so his conclusion is, I will not fight. I w I'm choosing non-action. You know, then in verse number 10, skipping along here, because I want to get to some of the real, the, the real juice of today's class. Then we'll go back and we'll, we'll memorize the, 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 the juicy verses, like Kutastva, this one. But then to him, you know, uh, to Bharata, um, in the midst of the two armies, Hrishikesha, again the awakening, awakened sense one, he, um, there's a particular expression here, prahasin, prahasan, prahas, prah, prah, ah, praha, is it two S's? Praha, no, one, prahasan, prahasan iva, iva means. Uh, quotations, but prahasan means means one who laughs. <laughs> it's like you know, it's so irritating. 
you can imagine because because Arjuna has just like gone through a very powerful sort of you know meltdown here which is the precursor to a great state of enlightenment and what what does Krishna do he prahasans he laughs at him he starts laughing it's so inappropriate you know it's like this serious battle is about to take place it's like you know this big killing is going to go on arjuna has just presented like the sort the most human the most most fundamental human dilemma and and krishna laughs at him you know he makes light of it this is also a great guru here this is a great guru because a great guru is not one who then goes down with the ship right it's like he doesn't it's like if two people here are both full of grief or full of like intensity if if krishna then says oh yeah you're right what kind of a guru is that you know what kind of guru is it I actually thought of the saying, um, only the dead fish float with the current all the time. <laughs> right, exactly. That's <laughs> so kind of like a saying that well. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's like, it's like the guru, the purpose of the guru here is to, is to help this person see the truth. And so if he, if he resonates with Arjuna, like, it's like, suppose Jeannie comes to me and she's like, Oh, you know, it's just such a, just had this big fight with Tim and, you know, he won't let me do what I want and I'm just so upset. And it, would I help Jeannie if I said, yeah, that bastard, you know, would I help her? She would look at me like, oh, good, I've got somebody to commiserate with me. But would I be helping her to see the light of truth? I would not. It's like it's it's like the contrast in emotion is so great because it's like oh come on, it's just like the laugh. It's like mm -hmm. oh are you kidding, mm -hmm. you know, it's that that rub. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a rub, but it's also the inappropriate response puts you in the present moment, right? It's like the inappropriate response. The appropriate response, like ordinary people would say, oh, yeah, you're right, Arjuna, let's run away quick. <laughs> you know, this is totally wrong. Or It's like commisery doesn't, doesn't instruct us. A, a good guru or a good teacher, a good, you know, a good conduit for higher enlightenment never goes on the same level doesn't go deliberately introduces a radical shift a contrast you know a diversion you do this with your kids don't you moms do this with kids all the time it's like divert them <laughs> divert them from like their state of mind because otherwise it's like we're not going to get anywhere here but but the other thing is that you because it's such a it's such a strange emotional response it gets arjuna's attention it should get all of our attention wow that's a weird response you know that's weird why would he laugh at him you know that laughing is it's like that's that's so inappropriate but that krishna it's like he's famous 
for being inappropriate. <laughs> Krishna, if you read the stories of Sri Krishna, it's like a guy is like constantly being inappropriate all the time, but it's to shake you. It's to put you in the present moment. That's why Veda Vyasa refers to him as Rishikesha also in this verse, because it's like present moment. You can be happy no matter what. No matter what, you can be happy. So there's two functions to that prahasan. Prahasan, there's two functions. One function is to be so inappropriate that it gets your attention. And the second is no matter what's happening. Here, let me show you the example. You can be happy no matter what. That's what Krishna is showing right now. I'm showing you. No matter what's happening, you can be happy no matter what. This is, this is something you have to fake until you make. <laughs> you fake it until you make it. I can be, it becomes your mantra. I can be happy no matter what. Go ahead. And then Krishna says something. These two verses, verse number 11 and verse number 12, are the, the subject of today's class. It's so beautiful. He says, Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, Ashochyan Anvashochastvam Pragyavadanshchabhashase Gata suna gata suscha, suncha, nanu so chanti pandita. Ha. Next week we'll chant it. This week we just hear the words pandita. Ha. Most important word in this verse, pandita. Ha. And I'm going to explain why. So he says, Blessed Lord says, Ashochan an vasho cha stvam. Ashochanan means you grieve. You're grieving. For an vasho cha stvam, for those that don't, for a situation that doesn't require grief. Okay? There's no grief that's required here, and yet you're grieving. He says, pragyavadanshchabhashase, and yet your your pragyavada, your speaking words. Vada means word. Pragyana means really enlightened words. You're grieving for those who are not meant to to be grieved, but you're speaking some kind of wisdom here. You're saying something that's true. He's not denying him. He's not saying that you stupid idiot. You don't know the truth. He's saying. Your reasoning is correct. You're right, you know. You're, you're grieving for those that you're, but what he's showing here is that there's a little bit of a gap in, in the um, understanding here. Because what, what Arjuna has presented to Sri Krishna at this moment is absolutely correct, you know. He's, he's gone through the process. He's, he's developed the, the rational argument. He's developed the heart. You know, he surrendered. He's gone to the state of the witness, kutastava, to see what this is all about. And he's concluded that, that this is just going to bring about problem. And he's wise. He's right. So Krishna's saying that. And then he says, panditaha. 
He says, now the translation says for that Panditaha, wise men or wise ones grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. Okay? But he's using a very specific word for wise here, Vedasa. He's using the word pun, is it pun? Pun. 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 Panditaha. Now, the difference between all these different kinds of teachers, remember some of you guys have been in my, my um, uh, Vedic studies classes and I've talked about all the different kinds of gurus, you know, there's the Acharya, there's the, the Sadguru, Chota Guru. Remember I talked about all those? There's different kinds of wise people, a Sadhu. You remember that? You don't remember? Doesn't matter. I'll go over it again some other time. But there's all different kinds of people who possess wisdom of the truth. Okay? A pundit, a pundita, is somebody who is a master. You'll remember this from my Vedic studies classes. A pundita is somebody who has mastered the Vedic scriptures, who's mastered the Veda who's done all that Vedic chanting, starts off with all the, 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 the shiksha, the, the pronunciation, learns how to recite the, the Veda, memorizes all the Veda, learns the Upanishads, memorizes the Upanishads, and then goes into the Shaddarshanas, or the, the, the six ways of seeing any possible situation in life. You know, we call that the six systems of classical Indian philosophy. That's a scholarly term. But it's darshana means the six ways of perception. So a pundit is somebody who's mastered those. A pundit is somebody who is schooled in all the ways of looking at the world and has been schooled in the Veda. This is not, a pundit doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an acharya. Acharya is a different kind of teacher. An Acharya is somebody who, who leads you to enlightenment, not, even, not necessarily relying on particular uh, scriptural precedents. You know, a Pandita is somebody who knows how to, to go to the source of the knowledge and bring it out for you. It's kind of like a rabbi. In, in Judaism. But an acharya is somebody who, just by my example, just by the way I hold my pen, just by the way I express myself, or the presence that I share, I, I share with you in a deep state of meditation, acharya, I lead you to the state of all expansive light enlightenment. Acharya is, 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 a, is a little bit beyond pandita. You know, and then remember we talked about the avadhuta. What is an avadhuta? Avadhuta, crazy wisdom. An avadhuta is somebody who does things that are completely, you know, upside down. And, and makes you like, you know, sort of shock you into truth. A kind of like an avadhuta is sort of like a holy fool you know, divine, divine madman, 
divine madwoman. Then there's babas, there's yogis, there's sadhus. There's all different kinds of, of categories of individuals who we could say have some piece of the truth pie. Okay, a pundit, a pundita is somebody who has mastered the knowledge. Okay, it's like I I like to feel like a pundita. You know, like I I think like after getting a PhD, like I could say, okay, I'm in pundita training because I can go to the scriptures and I can tell you what everything is. It's like a scholar kind of thing. That's a pundita, but scholar with some wisdom. Okay, so remember what is the subject of chapter two. Chapter 2 is divided into two parts. First part is the knowledge of... Ah. Knowledge of... Sankhya. Sankhya Yoga. It's okay. Sankhya Yoga. Because at some point here, Krishna's going to say, I've taught it all to you from the perspective of Sankhya, now hear it from yoga. Okay? So he's teaching from the perspective of Sankhya. That's why the word Pandita is appearing right now. Because what Krishna is recounting in the mind of Arjuna is a particular kind of way of seeing the world that gets enumerated and expanded in the Sankhya philosophy or the Sankhya way of seeing here. So he's saying Panditas, those who know this way of seeing, who've mastered this way of seeing, they don't grieve for the living or for the dead. And he's going to tell why here. Okay? Now, he's also assuming Arjuna kind of knows this because Arjuna is a Vedic student. You know, Arjuna has gone through a particular way of seeing and he also understands the, the, the Vedic perspective on things. We do not. So that's why I have to kind of fill you in here as to what he's assuming Arjuna knows, okay? And it's all tipped off by that word pandita, okay? He's not saying acharyas, sadhus, babas, avadhutas, pandits know this, okay? Verse number 12, he says, this is the classic verse. Next week we'll work on memorizing this one, okay? So gorgeous, I love this. Natchaiva Napavishyama Sarve Vayamatta Param. So what does he say? Never was there a time when I was not, nor you, nor all these these rulers, these kings in front of us. Never and never will there be a time when all of us will cease to be. Never was there a time when I was not, nor you, nor all these guys that are assembled for battle. And never will there be a time when we cease to be. Okay, friends, he's referring to what here? Pandita, he's referring to something very specific. You'll all have fun when I go through this again, for those of that you have been through it. He's talking about the Vedic concept of time, friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so here it is, Vedic concept of time. 
you know, because he's reminding Arjuna of something that everybody knows, but we don't know. Okay, he's just saying, wise men shouldn't grieve for those who, you know, shouldn't be grieved after. Wise men neither grieve for the living nor the dead. You know, never was there a time when I wasn't, nor you, nor these lords of men. Never will there be a time when we cease to be. It's like, that doesn't mean anything to us. You know, when we look at that, we look at it as, oh yeah, we're eternal. But it means something very specific in the Vedic context. This we need to chew on for the next week. Vedic concept of time. Mm -hmm. So what is the Vedic concept of time? This is all based on Sankhya, by the way. That's why we're bringing this out. Sankhya is based on... Um, uh, Sankhya actually means numeration. So you'll like this, Renee. It's all based on theory of numbers. It's all based on a Vedic system of mathematics. And so the Vedic system of mathematics, which, which we get enumerated in the Sankhya way of looking at things, is how we calculate <coughs> the time of stuff. How you calculate space and time is all revealed in Sankhya. And it's all based on Vedic, Vedic system of mathematics. So this is, this is proven. That's why he's using the word pandita. It's proven mathematically the age of the universe. So let me tell you about the age of the universe. Let me tell you about the Vedic concept of time. You've heard this before? Oh, good. Prepare to have your mind blown. <laughs> so, so in the Vedic concept of time, there are four of something, right? What are there four of? Four ages. There are four dimensions, too. But there are four ages um, of time. And they're called yugas. And yuga is where we get the verbal root yuj. I mean, where we get, it arises from the verbal root yuj, which is also where we get the word yoga. So we are all, what Krishna is saying here is that we are all yoked to this wheel of time, to this endless cycle of appearance and disappearance and appearance and disappearance. This is very important to realize what he's assuming because this is also part of your perspective that you developed with Bhagavad Gita. So the um, first yuga, the first age of time is called what? You remember? Satyuga. Satyuga, yeah, Satyuga, or sometimes what's called Krita-yuga. Krita-yuga. And Krita-yuga, this is all, these are all, um, these are all sort of related to um, the image of a cow standing on all four feet, okay? So if we have the cow of dharma, okay? Because dharma in all the different yugas is expressed differently. All the ages of time is expressed differently. So there's our cow of time, or our cow of dharma is what I'm saying. And he's standing on all four legs, all four legs. So what does that mean? That means in this particular age, this particular cycle, dharma is expressed perfectly. There is a perfect 
um, balance between good and bad, between right and wrong, and everybody knows exactly how to act in such a way that is in perfect alignment with the universal law. So I'm never in my actions during Satyuga, in my speech, in my thoughts, in my behaviors, I'm never violating natural law. My, li my, my life is aligned with it. Satyuga is called Krita Yuga, which means perfect age, golden age. It's the perfect age, 100% morality, everybody acting according to the natural order of things. The social order is really uh, evenly divided. There's no injustice. There's beautiful relations between people. It's golden age. Now, my teacher used to always say, yeah, but in the golden age, it took a lot more to make any progress. It's like, whereas now I can just all, Krishna's going to say this too. He's going to say, when we get to bhakti, he's going to say, in this particular age, all that's required is a, is a sincere offering. A little bit of this knowledge delivers us from great fear. He's going to say that. But in Satyuga, because everything is so ethereal and so, and so um, you know, perfect, and you have to have something to rub against in order to make some progress. And so this is when we have all those stories of those sages that meditated for like 10,000 years, 40,000 years. They did all this incredible tapas because that's what was required just to make a little bit of spiritual progress. That's the Satyuga. And Satyuga, according to the mathematical calculations, lasts a total of 1,728,000 years according to the calculations. Now there's controversy about the calculations, but let's just accept them for now. Some people believe, some people have calculated things differently, but this is how they calculated Satyuga. Then comes what is called Treta, the third age. Treta Yuga, and they call it the third age because our little cow of Dharma has lost a leg. He's only standing on three legs now. Treta means three. So our cow, so Dharma has declined a little bit. Dharma has diminished a little bit. And this is the age of the Ramayana. This is all, all revealed in the epic of the Ramayana. In Ramayana, the whole thing, I have to just watch my watch because I can go on stories like you wouldn't believe. So I have to keep discipline my mind here. So in Ramayana, Dharma declines because of one particular fatal flaw. And what happens is Rama is supposed to become king in a nutshell. Rama is supposed to become king. He has, he has two other brothers. He has Bharata and he has Shatrugna, which is a hard one. To, it's almost as hard as Dhritarashtra, Shatrugna. So he's got these, he's got these brothers. And, and, but Rama is the rightful king, rightful king or the rightful heir because his father uh, has three wives and his first wife, his eldest wife, is called Kaushalya. 
and Kaushalya, because she's his first wife, the eldest queen, her son by, by law is supposed to become king. Okay? But then what happens? Huh? The stepmother. The stepmother. Kaikeyi. Kaikeyi, what happens is the eve of the coronation, Kaikeyi's getting ready. You know, and meanwhile, everybody is so thrilled that Rama's going to become king. The whole, the whole Ayodhya, the whole capital of India is celebrating, and every, the king is overjoyed because the guy is like, he is the perfect example of Dharma. He always does the right thing. He's a perpetual good boy. You know, he always does the good. He always does the right. Everybody loves him. So what happens is, um, is Kaikei's maidservant, who's a hunchback, you know, very ugly, icky woman. She, um, she comes to her chamber and says, hmm, I'm really surprised that you're so happy, you know. And Kaikei's like, well, of course I'm happy. My Rama's going to become king. And she goes, hmm, well, you know that's the end of you. And she's like, what do you mean it's the end of me? Well, you know, your beauty's fading. You know, yes, you are the favorite of the king, but without a son in a position of power, you could just be left behind. You could just be thrown out as soon as you lose your beauty and you're old and ugly. You'll be, you'll be totally divested of any kind of power to influence anybody, and you'll just lose all your nice things. And so the maidservant's working on her. And then next thing you know, Kaikei's all up in, a, up in arms. You know, she's all up in arms. And she, she goes into a part of the palace, which is called the anger room. We should all have one in our house. You know, it's a place where you go to steam, to vent. And um, so she goes in the anger room. And everybody tells Dasharatha, well, it's sort of the equivalent of the doghouse, except that the woman goes in it, it's like the expression in Sanskrit is, it's not like, oh boy, you're in the doghouse. It means, oh boy, she's in the anger room. That's like the equivalent of the expression. Oh boy, she's in the anger room. So he goes, he goes to her. It's like, what's the matter, you know? And she invokes a promise at that moment that he gave her on a battlefield many years before. And the battlefield promise was, whenever you want something from me, I have to obey you. And so what she wants from him is that Rama should be exiled for 14 years and that her son, Bharata, should be coronated as king. Totally violates the law of Dharma here. And, and so that's what ends up happening. But the point is, is that Dharma declines in the Treta Yuga by gossip. This is what happens. By something that you hear in your ears. You know, somebody even did that to me today. Somebody put something in my ear that made me kind of like get all, all icky inside. I started feeling like, should I write that person an email message? You know, I started to feel that. And maybe I should write that person an email message. You know, and it was like, you know, and then I realized, oh, this is just stupid. This is just what goes in the ear. Remember? Madhusudana, the name for Krishna. 
It's the stuff that gets in your ear that creates all the problem in the mind and then the mind becomes, gets agitated and then it comes out as words and then those words become actions and then the whole thing is messed up. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens in Treta Yuga. That's how Dharma declines. And if you read Ramayana, it's one thing after another where somebody screws up a little bit by not keeping their promise and not um, not uh, knowing that gossip is just gossip. Who cares? Let it go. So is it is it the is it um, Kaikeyi's servant that does the gossip? That she's the one that starts the whole. She starts the whole thing, and she puts it in her ear, and then that starts the whole thing going, and then Rama's exiled, and then it's like one example after another of Rama trying to fix situations that are that are caused by. Um, uh, you know, little tiny slip-ups in dharma. When you read the, the Ramayana, Ramayana, it's not like Mahabharata, which is infinitely more complex psychologically. Ramayana is just like, you know, somebody just forgets to keep their promise or somebody, you know, falls prey to what they've heard, you know, and so then it creates a big mess. So that's not a big problem, but it is a decline in dharma. So how do you act in a world or act in a time when that's, that's what goes on? You know? So the rules of dharma need to change in Treta Yuga. And that lasts 1,296,000 years. That's the duration of Treta Yuga. Then comes... The loss of another leg. Then the time declines because we have to understand the time, the physics of time and space. It's like time and space infinitely expand, and then they seem time and space seems to come back again and collapse. It's like a it's it's the spandana principle. You know, it's like it's like in the beginning, in the most concentrated um, expression of time, there's more unity, there's more, um, there's more uh, sattva, that's a satyuga, there's more purity, there's more uh, sort of uh, connection with the natural laws. But then as we get further and further away from the beginning of time, everything starts to decline. And then it collapses on itself again. And then it does. So this is, the, this is that, that physics principle that is being expressed here. So our little friend loses another leg, and we come into what is called Dvapara Yuga. Dvapara Yuga. The second age. Dvapara Dvapara Yuga is the age of the Mahabharata. And it's totally depicted, Mahabharata, totally depicted in condensed form in Bhagavad Gita. What happens in, in Bhagavad Gita? Cow is standing on two legs. And the dilemma is what is good and what is bad. It's the, it's the duality, it's the age of dualities. 
And Arjuna's dilemma is all about that. It's like, what am I supposed to do when the, when the lines are crossed between what's good and what's bad? I mean, I can see on the bad side some good people, and I can see on the good side some bad people. That didn't happen in the age of Rama. It was very clearly evil and good. You know, Dvapara, it's like, what's good and what's evil? How do I act in a world that is, is characterized by contradictory oppositions? That's what happens. Contradictory oppositions. And there's a lot of reasons why Dvapara Yuga happens. I mean, how this, how this Dharma is expressed. It's all in the Mahabharata. It starts with with um, Santana, the king. Remember, we talked about all the cast of characters at the beginning of this class. Santana, he 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 hunts for sport. That's the first decline in dharma. He doesn't hunt because he really needs. There isn't an there isn't a a, a real um, sort of you know inequity here. Like I'm hungry, I need to eat. He just likes to kill. This is the first dilemma, you know, and then and then the next dilemma is that remember, um, Kunti. Uh, well, the next dilemma is is uh, Dhritarashtra who gets married and his wife blindfolds herself. It's like the blind leading the blind. When one has eyes to see, use your eyes to see. It's like that's the next decline in Dharma. Then Kunti giving birth to Karna. What's the other problem in Dvapara Yuga? Not knowing who you are, not knowing your divine self. People have lost, this is the whole context for the teaching of Bhagavad Gita. It's like, oh, I've lost who I am. I don't know my divine self. That's the whole, that's the whole problem with karna. And, and, um, and then, you know, Pandu, when sex becomes pornography, you know, that's his problem. That's, that becomes a decline in dharma. Like that, like that, brothers against brothers, uncles against uncles. It's like the, the, the line between what's right and what's wrong gets totally crossed, and we don't know. That's Dvapara Yuga, and that's the context of the Bhagavad Gita. And it all starts with, gambling <laughs> because remember the war starts because Yudhishthira loses in gambling right which is again not knowing gambling is not is 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 spurred on by by some kind of uh, surrender to foolish chance you know and not really knowing the value of something that's also what the gambling is all about. I don't value my money, so I'm throwing it on the table. I don't value my kingdom, so I'm throwing it on the table. So value becomes really hard. You have to have two things in order for you to be able to value something. You know, I value Yukiko's smile because I see somebody else frowning. Right? <laughs> I value somebody's laughter because I hear somebody else crying. It's like you have to have two things, but when those things are blurred, this is what causes the gambling. I don't really know what it is that I should value. So this is the Bhapara Yuga, and it lasts 800 
and 64,000 years. 864,000 years. And after Dvapara Yuga, our little cow, our little cow loses another leg. Loses another leg. And so now our, our cow of dharma, of what is right action, is standing on one leg, teetering on one leg. And this is what we call the fourth age or the age of Kali, Kali Yuga. So this is when people say to you, like, when you, when you make comments, which I always find annoying, you know, it's like bad enough that we should be in Kali Yuga, but you certainly don't need people coming up to you when you're like complaining about something, saying, well, you know, it's Kali Yuga. They're just like, oh, yes, I know. <laughs> it's like, you know, but this is what we're, this is what they're talking about. So Kali Yuga, and it, it started on, Kali Yuga started, there's a specific calculation for it, on February 18th. Uh, in the year 3102 BC. February 18, 3102. This is when Kali Yuga started. And that is the date of the death of Sri Krishna. When Sri Krishna died, Kali Yuga began. And this is when, and you'll see, this is the characteristic of Kali Yuga. And tell me if it makes sense to you. When property confers rank. So when you own something, it, it confers your rank in the society. Everybody should be a homeowner, right? This is the mortgage crisis. You're nobody unless you own a house. Property confers rank. Wealth is the only source of virtue. The wealthier you are, the more the more so-called virtuous or the more valuable you are passion or lust is the only bond between husbands and wives between two people who love each other two people who share a life together that passion should be the only or lust is the only bond which is totally what i see every day in my office i'm no longer attracted to him you know, I'm more attracted to this guy I met in my office. Do you think I should go for this guy that I'm really attracted to? I just don't feel any more passion for the husband. You know, every day is going on, you know, because that's how we decide who we love is who we lust after. Cheating and lying is the only source of success. Nice guys finish last, right? Sex becomes a form of entertainment. Sex becomes the only form of entertainment. Look at our entertainment industry. And then, this is also interesting, the outer trappings remain in religion. So in all religions, the outer trappings remain, the rituals, even the scriptures and everything, but the inner meaning has been lost. The real meaning has been lost. This is how we know that we are in the Kali age, when all this kind of stuff happens. So outer, outer trappings were what? Outer trappings remain in the religion, but the, but the real significance of why you do it are lost. Mm -hmm. Like, why do, you t why do you participate in the communion ritual? 
I don't know, we just do it. You know, body, blood of Christ. You know, mm-hmm. or why do you pray um, facing Mecca five times a day? Because that's what we do, we're commanded. You know, there, there, isn't, there isn't the real significance that's been lost. But the outer trappings, or, or a fundamentalist, the other, the other piece of this is, a, is when, when teachings are interpreted literally. When, when religious or dharmic teachings are interpreted literally, which is the case in all religious expressions right now. Literal value of the word. So these are all the signs of Kali. And these last, Kali Yuga lasts a grand total of 432,000 years. So we've got, we've got, uh, um, 432,000 years left of Kali Yuga. Well, a little bit less than that since 3,102. I'm wondering where the scriptural authority for these calculations comes from. I mean, you can think of other things where the Yugas are shorter and it might fit in with other evidence. Or maybe all four Yugas can exist um, in different places at the same time. Yes, exactly. And that is... is, um, uh, Sri Yuktasvar, in Autobiography of a Yogi, he debates this. Um, the, this comes from um, uh, Vishnu Purana. It comes from one of the Puranas, but it's based on the Vedic, supposedly based on a reading of the Vedic mathematical system. I can give you the exact reference. But this is why Krishna is using the word Pandita, because a Pandita is like a rabbi. You know, and ra- what rabbis do is they debate, and they they read things differently. And so what Selena's saying is true. There are there are panditas who um, who calculate the yugas totally differently. You know, so that's why I'm saying this is just this is just a way of looking at it. It may not necessarily be the exact calculation. You know, yes. What happens after the kali yuga? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then what happens exactly? This is where the fun begins. And the only reason why I'm I'm saying this is, you know, I, I totally agree with Selena. It's like it it's a it's a it's a interpretation, but it's meant to give you in general what Krishna is talking about here. When he's saying never has been there never has there been a time when you were not, nor me, nor these other people here that we're congregated with. And never will there be a time when we cease to be. This theory is true. You know, the theory, the numbers may be off, but the theory is true. Um yeah. I, was say, I think it's interesting that around the same time thirty one oh two BC is when Rahu and Ketu started being used in the charts. Oh interesting. And not before that, never before that. Oh interesting. So that supports it to me. And then about the mathematical validity, like one of my favorite things in the road is that um, in the tenth mandala Rig Veda, uh, it says salutations to the sun traveler of twenty two oh two Yurjanas per n- half in the Misha. Yojana is how long you can go in a day on horseback, and the mission is half a breath. You do the conversions, it's 186,000 miles per second, which is <laughs> what we just found out about 100 years ago is the speed of light. Oh, interesting. So the math is, they got the numbers right. The math yeah. is incredible. Yeah. yeah, Vedic math, it's just, it's mm-hmm. astonishing. I just don't have a mathical mind. 
mathematical mind, but Renee does. <laughs> so Renee should publish all this stuff because it's so <laughs> cool, you know. But anyway, this is a Kali Yuga. Oh yeah, you have a question? I have, um, is, so is Arjuna in the, are they in the Kali Yuga? Well, they're right on the edge because, because Dvapara Yuga ends with the death of Sri Krishna. So a lot of the teachings that Krishna is giving is prophetic for the Kali age. Even though the context is Dvapara, it's like, it's what he's talking about is, is, is preparing for this particular way of looking at it. It's like right on the edge of darkness. I mean, it's right on the edge of the Kali Yuga when they have this conversation on the battlefield. So it's like right, right before the other shoe drops. It's kind of like, here's the advice, you know, here's the bomb shelter kind of thing. So Kali Yuga at lasts 432,000 years. Now you could say, okay, this really bites. This is a horrible experience. But Krishna is going to, we're going to see in his teachings that, in, especially in the next verse or two, he says, even a little bit of this knowledge delivers from great fear. In Kali Yuga, it's the smallest little bit of light that becomes significant. It's just a little bit of this knowledge. It's a little bit of this light. It's like the expression that, that, that is, is relatable to that is when, when we say the light of a, of a match once lit exchange, it, it, uh, um, changes the experience of darkness forever. The light of a match once lit, it changes your experience of darkness forever. This is what Krishna is, is going to say to Arjuna here coming up. He's going to say, just know a little bit kutastva. It's like you don't need to like sit for hours and hours and hours to, to be able to, to know who you are. It's like use the opportunity of the emotion that rises up in you to see where it comes from. Kutastva. Use your discrimination, just a little shift. And you can save your mind at all costs. You can re be reminded of the truth. You can be reminded of who you really are. That's the benefit of Kali Yuga. It's very dense. It's a very, very dense. A little bit, you know, Krishna says all, like when he gets to Bhakti Yoga, he says, oh yeah, Bhakti Yoga is so easy. All I need is a leaf and a little bit of water. Fine. Offer that with pure love. And that's the most beautiful practice that you can do. You know, we'll come to all of that. But this lasts 432,000 years. Then what happens? So a whole, the whole summary of all four yugas, if we add up all the time, okay, all four yugas, we have a grand total of 4,320,000 years. And that equals what they call one Maha Yuga. 4,320,000 years equals one great age. All four together. Now, if I have a thousand of these Maha Yugas, so a thousand times 4,320,000 equals 4 billion. 320 million human years, okay? That is going to equal only one day of the creator. One day of Brahma, the creator. 
4,320,000,000 years equals one day. And one day consists of creation, evolution, and destruction. It's just like our day. We wake up, we do some stuff, and then we go back to sleep. That's what happens. And so when Brahma goes to sleep, we have one night of Brahma, which equals 4,320,000,000 human years. Okay, a thousand Mahayugas, a thousand rounds of Sat, uh, uh, Treta, Dvapara, and Kali, a thousand of them. One day and one night, they're called, they're each called a kalpa. So when we refer, when we see that word kalpa, and I think we're going to see it in Bhagavad Gita coming up here, one kalpa equals one day and, and, and one kalpa equals one night. So one kalpa equals 4,320,000,000 years. Okay, now, each kalpa, now this is interesting, each kalpa is divided into 14 intervals. 14 intervals which are called manvantaras. Krishna is going to talk about this too, so we should know what that is. What is a manvantara? A manvantara is, is an is a interval in between. It's kind of like a breath in between these particular episodes of time. And each consists, each one of these 14 consists of a particular fraction, and it's 71 and a slight fraction of a Mahayuga. So 71% and a little bit of a fraction, 71 point something, 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 I can't remember what the exact number is, of a Mahayuga constitutes what's a Manvantara. And it terminates, these intervals always terminate with a great flood. So this is the story of Noah. Manu is the Vedic version of Noah who saves the world from the flood. And they're supposed to last, I can't remember what the calculation is, the 70, 71 in a fraction percent. It's something like 26,000 human years. 26, 27,000 human years is the Manvantara. And supposedly, now this is some school of thought, so supposedly the next Manvantara ends. We're in the middle of a Manvantara right now. The next Manvantara ends on December 12, 2012. It's such and such a time. So this is where the whole theory that we're going to have a big epic flood or we're going to have a big earth shift that comes on that day. From the Vedic perspective, it's based on the on the yuga calculation. Now, what Selena says is there's like there's debate about you know what these mathematics uh, uh, involve. So you know it just it depends on which school of thought you you come from. But some say that that's what's happening. This twenty six thousand year cycle is ending on that particular day and time which is why the Mayan calendar, which also had a similar kind of astronomical mathematical system, had a similar calculation. So that's the nature. Now, we are supposedly in, in the present day of our Brahma, of our creator, we are in the seventh interval of 
the present day of Brahma. So it's kind of like intervals. Here's morning, here's noon, here's midday, here's afternoon, here's evening. That's what an interval is. So we're in the seventh interval of just one day in the life of Brahma. And there are seven more to pass before he goes to sleep. Okay? And this, this particular time that we're in right now, is the first day of the 51st year of our Brahma. Okay? And his lifespan is 100 years. So we're in the first day of his 51st year. Okay, and then it will, his life will last a hundred years of Brahma days and Brahma nights. And then that Brahma day and Brahma nights, a hundred years of them, is going to, la is going to be followed by a hundred years of Brahma days and Brahma nights of dissolution. Giving us a grand total of 311 trillion, 40 billion, I have to get all my zeros, yeah, one, two, three, 311 trillion, 40 billion human years, after which the whole cycle begins again with the birth of a new Brahma. So what that means for us is that all of the events that take place will recur again and again and again at the same moment in every yuga, in every particular period. That means that you guys, we have all been sitting in this classroom for many, 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 many other times. So they're saying exactly what happened before exactly happens again? Exactly happens again. So yeah, this is the disturbing. This is what disturbs. It's meant to disturb you until the next week. Just like the whole surrender question was meant to disturb you until next week. Yes, exactly the same. You will have asked me that question. You have asked me that question, Eric, <laughs> gazillions of times. And you will ask me that question a million more times. And we will sit here again and again and again, and we will encounter the same thing over and over again. Okay, we have to see what Krishna off. says. We have to see what Krishna says. Okay, go ahead. So does it repeat in each Brahman lifetime or in each yuga? It, it repeats in each yuga, which is the lifetime of the Brahma, but the Brahma lifetime is always the same okay. events. It's always the same. So it's that hundred-year Brahma lifetime that repeats. It's a hundred-year Brahma lifetime that repeats, and all of us that participate in this particular time, this this wheel of time, we will all be back again, doing the same thing again and again and again. Three hundred eleven trillion years. Yeah, and then it begins again. Yeah. It's endless time. Time is endless. Time is infinite. And it's always repeat. It always repeats. So this is why Krishna is saying this to Arjuna. He's saying Panditas know. They know that there's never been a time when we haven't been. And there never will be a time when we're not going to be together again. You know, we're all, we are all recycled again and again. This disturbs the mind, right? 
If the other stuff didn't disturb, this should disturb. Silka couldn't sleep for like two weeks after hearing this. He was totally like floored, you know, like I have to go back through junior high again? Yeah, you will. But who are you? This is what Krishna asks. It's like, you are grieving for those who should not be grieved for. You are identifying with something that is just part of a larger machinery. You will come back again and again, but who are you? You know, what disturbs us with the Vedic concept of time is we think, like, Sherry's like, but I'm Sherry. I'm the mother of these kids, and I'm a wife, and I'm doing all of these things, and I'm, I have these particular sets of experiences, and you're telling me I have to repeat them over and over again? What is the point? Right? I wonder if we're still in this same evolved body or we're in a lesser evolved body. Yeah, that's your big question, Louise. You know? And then I, there might be a spiral where we're in the next time our body will be different. Yeah, or you might be even more ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> this is your fear. Like, oh, you mean all my years, my efforts could be wasted? I spent all this time developing meditation and spending all this time, you know, cultivating cultivating a state of awareness, you mean it's all going to be lost? I'm going to go back to the Middle Ages and back to the Dark Ages and back to, like, you know, over and over and over again, Have I do, do I never make progress? This is something that we have to sort of see here, is that our, our mind is so conditioned to think of evolution as having a beginning, a middle, and an end. Time, having a, a beginning and a middle and an end. And so all of my, my actions are going to culminate in some kind of grand finale, you know. But this is not the way that the Vedic time works. Vedic time is always secular. You always come back to where you started again. You always come back again and again and again. But where is your identification? Where is your identification? You may be enlightened many, many times over, Louise. You think of it as one grand event, and then I'm, I'm enlightened, and then I'm eternally free. But, you, but according to Vedic concept of time, the whole thing is going back into ignorance. And then being awoken again, and back into ignorance, and being awoken again, and back into ignorance. It's like, it's like, who are you? Are you this body? Are you this mind? Are you all of these sets of events that happen to you? This is why Krishna says you're grieving for those that don't need to be grieved for. Because it's all cyclical, we'll all be recycled back into the whole thing again. But who are you? This is what he's asking. Who are you? Who, what, is, what is it that transcends the identity that we have with being Renee or Dave and Kiko and so on? Or Judy, Brown. Sherry. Huh? Brown. Yeah, it's, the, it's that which, that which stands, stands before time and space. This is what he's trying to get Arjuna to see. You know, you stand before time and space, but who are you? It's like we're so attached to our experiences and our thoughts and our feelings because we think that they belong to us, that there's something permanent called Sherry. And she's permanent. 
that that you know that that her thoughts her feelings her you know her experiences are somehow tangible in and of themselves when realize when really they are just a product of time and space that are all being played on by the by the elements by this by this incredible intelligent machinery but the problem is why we grieve you know why we and grief again it's an emotion it happens it's like the the mistake that we can make with reading bhagavad gita you should never grieve of course you grieve of course you feel happy of course you feel sad of course you feel angry but you stand before it there is something in you that stands prior to all of this experience if it comes back again which it will come back again and again and again the buddha revealed buddha saw this too on the night of his enlightenment he saw oh my god look at all these beings coming into existence passing out of existence coming back into existence he saw the whole wheel of time this is and and stood before it krishna is giving us the whole like intellectual basis for understanding this it's like it's not it's not experiential necessarily right now it's theoretical that's why he uses the word pandita he's using the word pandita because it's theoretical subject for debate as my other pandit here pointed out is it subject for debate i said yeah selina i know <laughs> it's subject for debate you know because it's pandita you know it's like we can we can debate all this other people can look at it but still this is this is the kind of this is the vision in general of the vedic concept of time and so you know he's saying it to arjuna to say come on culture your awareness culture your mind culture your 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 perspective to 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 really see what's going on here you're getting caught up in something that you don't need to get caught up in because ultimately you're free and you're liberated and that's what he says in verse number 13 we'll we'll go into all this he says dehi nosmin yatha dehi kaumaram yauvanam jara tatha dehantara praptir dhirastatra namuhyati he says as the dweller in the body dehe dehi no it's like as as we come into the body and we go through childhood and we go through youth and we go through old age and then we pass away and we come into another body he says the wise you know the wise ones what does he call the wise ones here dehe no yata dehe kaumaram he calls them um dhir the dhir the 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 enlightened one here he's not caught he's not saying pandita he's saying dhi somebody who's got awakened who's awakened to the truth doesn't get bewildered you know it's like you know have you ever looked at pictures of yourself from when you were little and you said oh yeah that's me and then you look at pictures when you're like going off to school oh yeah that's me too and then you see a pictures of you like you know getting a few gray hairs oh that's me and then wow i look old and then pretty soon you just run when a camera comes cuz you don't want your picture taken anymore cuz you just can't face it who is it that is the me 
who is it that you're pointing out as that's me, that's me, that's me. There's something in you that never changes even through this course of time and space. That is, that is worth realizing, he's saying here. And now he's saying verse 14, which is the truth of this whole thing. He says, Matras parshyantu kauntea she tosna mukka dukkada agama payo that's a tough one. Titikshas, titikshas bharata, He's saying, he's saying contact with the senses, contact with the sense of the senses, contact of the senses with their objects. It gives rise to the experience of cold and heat, pleasure and pain. They pass away. They come and they go. Bear them. This is very beautiful. This is the teaching of Sankhya right here. It's like you are the witness, Purusha, the term for witness in, in Sankhya philosophy or Sankhya Darshana, the way seeing according to this particular vision is Purusha, the, the free, inherently free self, that self which never decays, that self which is always with you, what you identify as you, never passes away. But here he's saying the, the teachings of Sankhya, which is the element creates, the element exists in the nature. My, it makes a contact with my sense apparatus, which we call the mind. It comes in through the sense organs. And my mind then sorts it out, this apparatus called the mind, and says, I like it, I don't like it. It's hot, it's cold, it's, it's wet, it's dry. It's, I like it, I don't like it, right? This is Jeannie's class, isn't it? This is your yoga class. Jeannie, could you please turn the heat off? It's a little too hot in here. Well, it's a little bit too cold now. Couldn't we go outside? I'd rather do yoga outside in the sun. This is when you, we are going to memorize this verse next week. We are going to go into this in great depth. And you are going to remember, and you're just going to sing it to them. <laughs> you just sing it to them. It's like, it's like whatever. You know, it's like heat happens, cold happens, pleasure happens, pain happens. Yeah, it's like move your hand off of the hot stove. You know, don't be an idiot about it, but know that it is going to pass. You are not your senses. You are not your mind. You are not your feelings. You are not your thoughts. They all are transient. They all pass away. It's like we get caught up in our memory too, right? It's like, you did this to me. How dare you? You know, and we hold on to it. It's like this becomes cemented in our mind apparatus, whatever has come in through the senses, we determine, which is all has to do with some, some uh, uh, element in the environment, comes in through our sense organs, it makes contact with the mind apparatus, the, the discrimination decides hot, cold, like it, don't like it, good, bad, and then it stores its, its 
its assessment into the memory. So this is exactly like you had a great vacation, but your flight was delayed by like 28 hours and you got bumped and you have to like wait in Cleveland for, for 12 hours and then you have to go to Dallas and then finally two days later you arrived home in Denver. What does your Smriti tell you? It was the worst time. I'm never flying on American Airlines again. I refuse to like ever go to the, on a trip like that again. You know, remind me if I get too uh, excited about going to the Big Island again, <laughs> right? Even though you your mind is so selective, but what you but but what Krishna is saying here is is in verse number fifteen he says Yamhina Vyatayantiete. Purusham Purushashabha, Purusharshabha, that's it, Purusharshabha, Samadukha Sukkam Dhiram, Sosmithat Vayu Kalpate. This is such a great verse. He says, That person, that yogi who these kinds of experience don't disturb. They don't disturb you. Who is even-minded? He says, "Sama, sama dukkha sukham, sama dukham sukham." This is such profound, mind-saving knowledge. Whoever is equal in pleasure and in pain. Now, this this is this is um, what can create the yogi automaton. You know, this is the yogi automaton who says, mm -hmm. "Well." You know, pleasure and pain doesn't matter. We will still continue. You know, we will. I will become indifferent. It is not a mood making. It is not a mood making. It's like, yeah, enjoy your pleasure, suffer your pain. This is, you know, it's it's okay. It is human for us to respond to, to, uh, you know, having to go bankrupt you know, or having to lose something that we really wanted, or having to, like, suffer some kind of, you know, unfair injustice. It's okay to feel that, but you stand before it. That's what he means, sama. It's like, I am not thrown off of my center just because some wave of emotion comes through me. I go back to myself. I go back to myself. Because pretty soon here, Arjuna is, uh, Krishna is going to say, you know, he's not going to say, go hang out, you know, in the yoga workshop with the ascetics, you know, with the ash-smeared ascetics who are sama, sama dukkha sukha, you know? It's like, I am not affected by hot or cold. No, of course you're affected by hot or cold, but you stand in front of it, and Krishna is going to say, act from that place. Don't act. He's going to say, therefore, stand up and fight. It's coming here. He's going to say, stand up and fight. He, what he means is, don't become an automaton and, and, and say, okay, well, I'm not affected by pleasure or, or, or pain. Um, I, don't want, I don't want anything. I have no desires. I've, I've completely transcended the need for anything, which is the mistake that a lot of yogis make. Krishna says, act from a place of transcendence. This is called yoga. When you, when you go beyond the senses, 
when you touch that experience and then you act in the world instead of acting because I feel sad or I feel happy or I feel angry. I'm angry at you, Eric. I will never be your friend again. You know, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's like I'm acting out of an emotion. It's like I can observe my emotion. I can even feel it, respond to it, whatever. But when I act, I act out of that which transcends the senses. This is the whole, this is the whole symbolism of the archer. Arjuna is the greatest archer in the world, okay? The symbolism of the archer is the, is the yogi. This is, it's not just somebody fighting a battle. It's like, just like the chariot in, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the story. When the chariot comes, when Krishna's chariot is driven in the center of the battlefield, what does that mean? It's driven by four white horses, I mean seven white horses. Purified. Purified body, the body of the yogi, the one who has controlled, who's gotten, who's, uh, who's cleaned out their senses, right? Who's purified their senses. We'll talk about sattva, rajas, and tamas when he starts going into the three gunas. But somebody who has purified themselves, this is the whole practice of yoga, who's fit to be able to discern the truth. So he pulls a chariot, but the archer is exactly what Krishna is talking about here. It's like, if I want to shoot my bow, but I don't pull the, pull the string deep back, suppose I only pull it halfway back and release it, where is it going to go? It's, <laughs> it's just going to drop to, the, it's going to be totally ineffectual. That is acting on the things that arise because of contact with the sense objects. You know, if I act out of anger, then that will screw everything up. I can feel anger, you know, why not? Of course, it's like I can't, you can't suppress what's going through this body-mind. It happens, anger happens, happiness happens. But what he means by samadukha sukha, is he saying, go deeper, go to where you, you transcend the feelings and act from there. Don't act out of what is transient, hot and cold, you know, wet or dry, happy or sad. Don't act out of that. Act from the state of depth, and then your action will hit the target. It will hit the target. I think also with the archer, like you can't have attachment to it once it goes. Yes. And so many of the sutras, like is attachment to prior pleasure, and dislike is attachment to prior pain, and yes. grief is attachment. So to go beyond attachment. It, exactly. It's it, and he's going to go into it more when he talks about the yoga here, because he's he's giving the theory right now. He's saying stand, He's going to say you know the that that none of this that is transient has any kind of value in terms of how you act in this world. You don't act because if you act according to that, it's going to be all a mess. It's always a mess. You know that. It's like if I send the email out of anger, right? Isn't that like where we experience the big mess? We get so mad. I, and I know I've done this in my past. It's like I'll get so mad and I'll send an email. 
it always ends up being the worst thing I could have done. The absolute stupid, worst, dumb mistake. It just creates all kinds of problems. And Krishna says, okay, feel the pain. Feel, the, feel that, but go deeper behind and act not out of that space. Don't act out of that space because it's a mess. Skill in action is bringing together. This is yoga. Skill in action is bringing the transcendent into the field of activity. Bringing the depth. See, Arjuna wants to just, uh, I will not fight. He's, he's, he, he goes into that state of surrender. He goes to the place where his senses are all dried up. He, he experiences the transcendental reality. But his conclusion is, well, once you experience that, I shouldn't act. But the, but the skill is when you take that and then you apply it to whatever your dharma is, whatever, whatever is, is, is appropriate for you to do. In this case, it's appropriate for Arjuna to start fighting a battle. Did I ever tell you about this guy, Geshe Michael Roach? Did I tell? I told you about him. Um, so there's a beautiful book um, that, that was written by this guy named Geshe, Geshe Michael Roach. And he, um, he had studied for many years with his, with his teacher and, you know, had experienced very high states of, of, of um, consciousness, of meditation. He'd been, you know, a beautiful state. Why should I ever want to leave this? I'm in, a, I'm in perfect joy. I'm really happy here. And then his teacher tells him to go and get a job in the diamond industry. He tells him to go become really successful in the diamond industry. And, and, and Geshe Michael says, diamond industry? I have absolutely no experience in the diamond industry. And, and I have like, you know, no connection in the diamond industry. And, and it turns out that the diamond industry is totally controlled by a very close-knit Hasidic Jewish community. And so Geshe Michael's like, well, what am I supposed to do? And his teacher says, well, I don't know, but you got to leave the ashram now because I don't want you around anymore. I gave you what I told you to do. This is acting from the state of total surrender and transcendent state of reality. It's like all the confusion, all the upsetness, I will just do it. And he ends up doing it. He ends up going in there and he like sleeps in a closet in this diamond company and he does whatever he needs. He starts cleaning the floors and he starts like building himself up and he ends up becoming extremely successful in the diamond industry. The book is fantastic, but it's exactly illustrating what Krishna is going to explain here about how to act in such a way that integrates. The whole point of it wasn't for him to become super rich in the, in the diamond industry. His teacher gave him that exercise so that he could take his deep experience, his profound meditative experience, and integrate it into the world. That's called dharma. That is dharma. So, and especially in Kali Yuga, when it's so dense, it's like a little bit of that integrated into this world brings so much light. Doesn't matter what you do, you know? It's like one of my, one of my clients, I'll just tell you this and we'll end. One of my clients, like, she, she, she's 
she got married to this guy or whatever who's a yogi. And he, you know, she brought his chart to me and she said, oh, all he wants to do is be a yogi, you know, he, he doesn't want to, he doesn't really want to work, he just wants to take classes and take anusara yoga immersions and, <laughs> you know, that kind, it's all he wants to do. And, and I looked at his chart and I said, yeah, he needs to integrate. You know, think about how amazing he would be taking that beautiful experience that he's cultivated in yoga and applying it in some way in this world. That is skill in action. That is integrating the transcendent in this field of changing materiality. It's really profound. And so what ended up happening is they got into a big fight, of course, after she talked to me. And, um, but what ended up happening was he was wise. It was very interesting. And he said, okay. And so they ended up moving to Manhattan, and now he's a trader on Wall Street. He said, okay, I'll do it. I'll see what happens when I totally integrate my yoga. Because everybody I talk to in these yoga worlds, they're like, oh, I left the corporate world behind, thank God. Now I'm just going to be a yoga teacher or I'm just going to like work at the yoga studio for five bucks an hour or whatever it is because I just don't want anything to do with that world. I hate that world. And this is, this is the Arjuna effect. It's like the person who is a yogi, who's touched that transcendent space, who carries that with, it, with them, their job is to integrate into the world. Their job is to purify this world with that embedding it in the fabric of the society that's called that's called real success so anyway any questions yeah <laughs> i have a question i hope um just a couple of times uh, arjuna was called paramtapa yeah like paramtapa sculpture of the foe and i thought that was an interesting translation to go from foe to par like, so it's really, he sculptures everything. He sculptures what's beyond, or... Right. Parantapa means, you know, scorch the foe, but what is the foe? It's his inertia. It's param. It's everything beyond. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was an interesting... Parantapa. Yeah, hold that. We'll talk about it next class. Yeah. Uh, the name of the book? Yeah, see, you need it. The Diamond Cutter. No, I haven't met him. I don't even know if this book is like necessarily a great work of literary genius, but the point is good. Right, I think it's a it? good story. Geshe Michael, and I think it's Roach. And I found it at the library. Oh, you did? Yeah. Did I have I mentioned this before? Did you read it? Uh huh. What did you think? Good. I thought it was good. He's yeah. a Buddhist. Yeah. So it's based on Buddhism. Right. So, you know, he goes into, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it was his teacher told him when he went into the business, he had to apply the principles, but he couldn't tell them right. that he was Buddhist. Right. That, that was what he was doing. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's so brilliant. Yeah. It's like, it's what we all should do as an experiment. Because Krishna, and Krishna's going to tell us how to do it. You know, there's such a beautiful formula to this. This is yoga in action. This is true yoga, which is integrating the, the meditative experience with the field of activity. That's called enlightenment. You know, you can be enlightened in your cave. Who cares? But if you can, like, integrate that, be a bus driver, wow. 
It's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Through the library, they have yeah, a library mm -hmm. And so you might have to get another library to send it to your library. What a good student. She but reads the books, I suggest. If you, if you get a library card, you can do it online. Sweet, I have it already. Yeah, just go online. Sweet. Any other questions? Did you like the yugas? Do you like the idea that you're always going to keep coming back over and over again? No, Eric doesn't like it. <laughs> 311 trillion years. Yeah, you'll forget. You'll forget by then. Okay, final blessing. Om Asatoma Satgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityor Mam Ritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Lokasamasta Sukino Pavantu Lokasamasta Sukino Pavantu Lokasamasta Sukino Bhavantu Om Shanti 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 Namaste Jay Gurdav Fun, I love it.